Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. And today, it's your lucky day. You've got the two of us and maybe even a great dog in compliance. And Lisa also provides a caveat that there may be a GMIC on the scene with a great mother in compliance potentially hitting the episode as well. So we could be full of surprises today, dear listener. Today's theme as we kick off the new year is essentially a like a New Year's resolution type theme. And Lisa and I were both thinking about something that we think compliance officers should be looking out for, committing to do in the year ahead. So for me, I don't make New Year's resolutions. I would probably be slimmer if I did. But one year, and this is probably about eight years ago now, I did commit at the beginning of the year to doing a a random act of kindness every day. And it it was divided up between strangers, randoms in the street, people behind me in the checkout line at the grocery store to sending friends random notes of appreciation and compliments, that kind of thing. And it's something that I felt was from was a very small scale, but it really impacted my mindset and my outlook. And it came to be the case that thinking about random acts of kindness became at the forefront of my mind. I was thinking about it very consciously because of this commitment. And I recommend it as something that I think is a way to be impactful in the world around you, not necessarily creating huge waves, but we all know that small ripples create waves regardless. So that was something that I'd been thinking about recently and what inspired me to have this kind of theme for today. Lisa, what about you? What was going through your mind when you thought about this idea? I guess when I think about New Year's resolutions, and I'm not a huge New Year's resolution person, also being Mm -hmm. Jewish, so have two New Year's, so I had plenty Mm. of time to think about those. I thought a lot about change and evolution and over time what scalable changes, and I'll talk about that when we talk about this a little further, but what do I want to change and evolve in my career and how I perceive it and in my life as a whole related to ethics and compliance? I will put the laundry list of other things that could require some assistance, although anybody wants to get in touch, again, we love help. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I really was just thinking, what's important to me as I start this year? What to change, what to keep the same, and how to grow? I think it's more of a growth time and a time to reflect on that. So that's where I started on all of that. Cool. All right. So let's, without further ado, jump right in. The first thing that I've been thinking on and seeing trending in my newsfeed was as we were ending the year, a couple of children's books on ethics were released. And the first thing that hit my LinkedIn newsfeed was a contact of mine by the name of Rosalind Spinks, and her pen name is Phil Izzy. And she wrote a series of ethical behavior books for children. And I thought that was fabulous. And then I think 
think it was the very next day, dear friend of the podcast, Great Gentleman in Compliance, and in fact, our producer, Tom Fox, released a book called Being a Compliance Officer is Awesome. There's a bit of a space visual theme going on. And the premise of the book is for being able to help children understand about the career path of what it is that a compliance officer does. And I thought this was an interesting micro trend that we saw coming out. And it reminded me one of the things that I feel very strongly about when it comes to creating and cultivating a culture of integrity within organizations is that one of the easiest ways in which you can do this is start at the hiring stage and incorporate a tricky ethics fact matrix into the hiring process. You can partner with HR to do this. You can train the trainer, your leaders, or you can have compliance involved in the process to do this. And a way to get some of that little library catalog of scenarios is to consult with your internal audit and investigations teams to sanitize some scenarios and present those to interviewees and have them walk you through how they would approach that sticky situation, moral dilemma, um, if they were in it themselves, to get an idea as to their ethical decision making. And I thought, wow, these children's books, that's really taking it a step further. And one of the things that I'm always perplexed about are viral posts that we often see on both Facebook and LinkedIn as examples. That's probably the only social media I do, so you may see them in other places. And there'll be examples of a child being bullied in school and a story as to how that child has received support and overcome those issues. And I always think, who are the little shits that are causing this child such grief in the first place? Where are they learning their incivility from? And let's take it a step further and not just be thinking about, okay, how can we be ensuring that we hire only the good apples into our workplaces, but also for the young lives that we're responsible for, how can we be teaching them about caring about others, acting with integrity, treating people with respect and dignity? And I think these children's books are a good way forward in that respect. So it's something to think about for the young folks in your life. I'm going to say a little bit about that point, and it relates very slightly peripherally to my first point, but I think mm. it does. I think one of the things that I keep working on, and I think we all do, is basically we are trying to encourage people to make ethical decisions. People mm -hmm. ask me what I do in one sentence or what we do in organizations. It At the moment, when somebody has the choice of doing the easy wrong thing or the hard right thing, they feel empowered by the organization and us to make the ethical choice. And starting that from a kid's level and looking at that in that way and saying that's a cool thing to do is mm -hmm. a really, really good point. Now, one of my first points is a little, is more of, you don't need to change everything in a day. Mm. We're starting with, but when, at least when I was young, I don't think I'd really thought about compliance officers to begin with. But mm. when I started my career, we thought of them more like the yes, department of no, sheriff's type thing. But the more we talk about it that way, and the more we start early on, I think for, for us as a whole and for people trying to do the right thing, it's helpful from kids and others to see if that is something to aspire to. And I think that was where I come out too, is like sometimes when we try to fix anything or go into something, we try to change everything right away. So one of the things I was thinking about, which is don't try to look at your whole program and think these are all the things I didn't get done in 2022 mm -hmm. 
or 2021 or whenever you're doing it. <laughs> a year can, I mean, my year was a year of change. So what is scalable? What is reasonable? What is most important? And what are those things for you or for your program? I think that would be one of my first points on that. So what are those for you? And then I guess I'll jump on to my second point, which has nothing to do with these, which is the thing I've been thinking about lately and is really blowing up my feed. I will say mostly on LinkedIn. It is I do Instagram and look at TikTok or those other things, but this is pretty much a compliance and corporate compliance issue is ephemeral communications. Basically, what can we do? What should we do? Um, what is sufficient from the DOJ's point of view? What is the right thing to do? How do we change cultures of people who will use WhatsApp or Weibo or WeChat versus what, what we need to do and keep records for? And with all the different proclamations about that, what is and isn't sufficient? You can have the best policies on the planet, but you, if you're not doing anything to enforce them, that's one thing. On the other hand, if you have people all over the world who have one how are you making sure that they use it properly? And how how can we be responsible as compliance officers? Yeah, that actually was one of my points as well. Our ideas are definitely overlapping here. This is in regards to, I think it was the Monaco memo as opposed to yep. Kenneth Polite's speech focusing more on this area. And why I totally understand why the government is interested in this in principle. As a compliance officer, I'm struggling with this pragmatically and in practice. So to your point, Lisa, we can have a policy that talks about how you must not use instant messaging apps to conduct business and so on. But that doesn't really help us when it comes to the fact that people can and will use their personal phones. And that in some jurisdictions, if they're electing to even use their business phone, there may be some data privacy issues with being able to lean on that information for investigations, monitoring and review. So to your point about enforcement, I don't think the question is, are you enforcing? It's realistically, what can I do? What do I have control of? to be able to enforce. So what I'm really looking forward to, there is apparently going to be some more guidance on this particular topic. We can expect this in 2023. I'm super excited at the prospect of it and hopeful that due to some of the folks that have been chief compliance officers sitting in the Department of Justice, they'll be able to advocate for the, what it's like to be in the shoes of the compliance officer. The guidance will be reasonably helpful and practical for us to put forward in the future. But I think in the meantime, it really is focusing on getting at least our policies in the right place on this communicating about it. And if you do come across an instance where people are not you where people are using instant messaging, if you are perhaps on the receiving end, if you find yourself in a group message, make sure that you're putting a stop to that and reiterating the company's stance on it as what I think is probably about the best that we can do in the interim. And also be doing a good job on training on it and making sure people yeah. know it's not permissible. And yep. I mean, it's amazing to me how little people will listen to that occasionally. I had a long conversation with someone once, and then a few hours later, they're like, I'm going to WhatsApp this to you, because it was easier from their phone. And it was just scheduling a meeting. So I wasn't concerned I, for timing or something. But I'm thinking, people just ah. don't 
And it's, it's a slippery slope as well. Right. Let's say you do an admin messaging. You free at this time to talk about this this issue in this country, and then you respond yes, and then you start getting okay. And just for a little bit of context, and then you start getting a little bit of information. And so, where do we draw the line? Exactly, and it really is a challenge that is not going to go anywhere. And the, to state the obvious, if somebody's trying to engage in wrongdoing. They're not going to say, let me get on Teams to write someone about <laughs> how to potentially talk about how we're going to bribe someone. They're going yeah. to do something that's ephemeral and not treat. So how do we best protect ourselves? But I think it's going to, the guidance is going to be great, at least in terms of informing us of what our responsibilities are. I just hope it's got some practical components that we can address in reality to train and handle it. So that's my next yeah. thing. I guess I figure we would be on the same page on a few things. Yes, yes. And what leads into that for me as well is the chief compliance officer certifications. This is obviously a very big topic for the compliance community. And interestingly, the legal community, a lot in private practice were opining, especially on some of the challenges that were anticipated with certifications coming out of compliance. And I think what's important for us to note as practitioners is that these are happening in practice. We saw Stericycle have that requirement and ABB had the requirement as well. It wasn't in the initial documentation that was released, but it was in the settlement agreement. And a very interesting sort of, I think, a dovetail from ABB is that the government has talked a lot about recidivist offenders and for anyone who's been in trouble before. And that may have made you nervous. I know it didn't make me super excited in a positive way. What was interesting was ABB was double best offender. This was their third FCPA issue and they did not get a monitor. So it's going to be very interesting to see, while I do believe that the government is going to be taking a strong stance on recidivist offenders, I think the messaging that we can take away from AB is that it's not necessarily life and death. Okay, you know that I'm using that as hyperbole. It isn't always life and death as it is, but the end of the world, if you will, from a corporate standpoint, if the company gets in trouble again, if you are prompt with disclosure and very good cooperation, remediating the problem, that seems to be the, at least the messaging from AB and some of the declinations that we've been seeing in 2022. There is hope, even if you are a recidivist offender, there is the ability to rise from the ashes like a phoenix when something goes wrong. I'm going to be keeping an eye on just how much we're going to see compliance officer certifications coming out in settlements, as well as what's really going to happen with recidivist offenders and what are the differentiating factors that result in getting a monitorship versus a declination or a smaller settlement. That's all. I was actually going to talk about the idea of not so much the recidivist aspect, but the declinations and when they come mm -hmm. and when, whether or not, if you self-report, there, there's the, generally there's a presumption of a declamation that if you are acting appropriately, all of that, I just, I'm interested to see how this, again, all works in practice. Again, I think last year it was like 10 declinations were announced or since this has started, I can't remember the exact number. You're much better at these statistics, but are, are things just being held on to forever when there might be declination? Are they really going to stick to committing to when this idea that if, if you really try to self-report, you're the opposite of a recidivist? Are they going to say, we understand things happen? Is that truly 
you know, is that truly going to work out in reality as well as in practice? Because we tend to hear about all the ones that you're talking about, but there are lots of others that come up every day. And when they're not as interesting or exciting or there's as much substance or meat to them, we don't hear as much about that. And so hopefully we'll, we will get some more understanding and transparency of situations where people do see something going wrong, handle it correctly, and it gets acknowledged or rewarded. So I was thinking a lot about the whole concept of self-reporting. Does it really have the benefits? Will companies start doing that because it shows what it what we can actually do with that and the benefits? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's your next point, Lisa? Okay, so this one might be a little bit controversial, but I'm throwing oh. it out there. I know it could be ju- it's juicy for our world, but <laughs> I'm going to talk about ESG, okay. not how important it is, but, <laughs> which it is. I'm going to start with that. It is. But I have a lot of people in my networks lately and people reaching out to me saying, why is this ours all of a sudden? Why are we in ethics Mm. and compliance? Should we be owning all of this? Can we? Should we be interacting? Is it the way it should work for all organizations? Or for some people, is it just another way of us integrating and separating from legal? Which is why I'm saying it's a little bit controversial because I think it's a critically important area. I think a lot of the organizations that intertwine them do an excellent job. But this idea that some are going out for foregone conclusions and also at almost every conference, that's become the focus, at least it's some component or part of it. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of that. But what about some of the other things? Is this a trend that's sticking? Is it ours? What do we do with it? I think, for what it's worth, I think it's, again, I'm I'm a big fan of what works right for certain organizations. We need to be a part of it always, maybe sometimes leading it. But I also think our E, we can't be an ESG expert in the traditional sense, but I think if we think about the E as ethics, as opposed to that is where I see us as ESG with the ethics part of it as well. What's your thought on this? One of the things that I find incredibly wild is when there are jobs that require you to be general counsel and chief compliance officer. And I'm like, how the heck do you have time? Like, how do people have time for that? And I think the same thing applies that people who have been traditionally looking after the compliance portfolio and someone's like, here, have ESG as well, because you've clearly got a lot of spare time. No. How can someone that's running so many elements of a compliance program and not necessarily bleeding with budget to spend on consultants and staff to help them. So even assuming you do have a team, there is still so much and there's so much proactively that we can do with compliance programs that we're just, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And the easiest ones to point to for that, I would say, are data analytics and behavioral science. The way in which we can be enhancing our corporate compliance programs, those two areas is the opportunity is massive. It's quite proactive in many respects, and we don't have the time or even the resource to get the expertise to be able to help us with that. So to be still theoretically having our plates overfilling on the compliance side and then be like, hey, just casually, could you do the E and the S as well? Like to me, that's just massive. And it's, I'm just, I'm making assumptions here because I've never been asked to do this, but I'm going to predict because I'm a very cynical person and it's what makes me good at investigations is that a lot of the time when people get the ESG portfolio on top of the chief compliance officer hat, it's a quiet promotion. I don't necessarily think people are being told, oh, and have an extra 
30% salary on top to take care of this additional portfolio. Just, you'll figure it out. No, why should we figure it out? That's my view on it. I know it wasn't directly in terms of your initial topic, but I to answer what you were getting at, I think there, I totally understand why people see that it makes a lot of sense for us to look after ESG because we are familiar with creating a program, policy drafting, monitoring and review of the standards that we're shaping, training and awareness on these concepts. But just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. It doesn't mean that there isn't someone better placed or that can be better placed if they're hired within the organization to do it. I totally agree with you. I think if you've decided that ESG does not belong in the portfolio of compliance and that we don't own it or coordinate the ESG program, we certainly should be a vested stakeholder if for no other reason than the items that I just mentioned as to what makes us an attractive place to drop the portfolio. But of course, the governance side is is almost completely, I think, covered by many modern day compliance programs. So we're almost always going to be sitting on that egg anyway. It's the other two that I think are a harder push for compliance to take up. And the question then becomes, should we be taking it up even if we're capable of doing so? And if we are willing and able, how much are you going to pay us to make it fair? to people getting an additional workload. Yeah, quiet promotions. I love that term. So I think I have a lot of other things we could talk about for hours, but I'm going to say one that's a personal, personal goal. And then I think that for me is, again, this year, I've been starting to think about what areas substantively scare me. Mm. Last year, my scare me was, and it remains scaring me, is doing my solo episode one thing. Yeah, you've done great with that. That I do that. And then, but this year I'm like, what is a substantive area that scares me the most? And should Mm -hmm. I learn, what do I want to learn about it? And what's important? There were two or three that are in there. But for me, the big things I think I personally am going to try to learn a bit more about this, whether they eventually fall into a compliance remit or not, are fraud and anti-facilitation of tax evasion. Basically, the whole phrase anti-facilitation of tax evasion sounds very complicated to me. And again, you know how I feel about numbers. But I think that these are things that become more and more important and a way for me to move out of what I generally do well and that I'm comfortable with. So those are two that I also read a lot about, and I think they're becoming pretty significant. And also some of the things that I, in some, some things I've been reading coming out of the UK, I, I'm in a UK-based company, so that has been interesting, especially on some of the tax evasion issues. I don't think the tax part is actually a compliance part. I think the facilitation and the way in certain circumstances, investigations or others, people try to help people avoid that. And then it turns into a money laundering or other issue eventually turns into a corruption type. Interesting. We we incorporated a tax compliance module into our 2022 code of conduct training this year and worked pretty heavily with the tax compliance team on that because not like a comfort area for me. I found that to be quite an enjoyable collaboration, really nice people to my organization (laughs) to work with. Yeah, to help broaden understanding there and help another team get the awareness out for their area of the organization. So I think that covers most of mine. Do you have any others? I just had one more. I I like opining on the state of the job market for hunters and hunters alike. So one of the things that I've noticed is that there are a 
whole lot of people looking for new roles right now in the ethics and compliance space. It was to the point where a recruiter contacted me and asked if I had any referrals. And I was like, there are like six people I know that would suit this particular role looking right now. I think it's a pretty competitive market. So what I'm curious about is, does the great resignation still have an impact? I'm suspecting not so much. And the reason I say that leads into my next point, which is that seemingly the pendulum is swinging back to a lot more on-site roles. And a lot of the people that I know that are looking are either looking for roles where they're geographically based or that they're remote because a lot of individuals are not geography agnostic. And so I think it's interesting that despite the fact that the pandemic showed us that in many roles we can in compliance effectively work from just about anywhere, employers are seemingly taking the opportunity to to bring back on-site requirements. So my comment would be for those of us hiring for our teams, do note that in order to get the best talent, it will be a competitive advantage, I think, if you're able to be relatively geography agnostic about where the candidate can be based. And that I think there are a lot of people out there who are totally disgusted at the thought of any roles that require you to be in the office five days a week, though I am hearing certainly that those roles exist. And at that point, I just I have to ask the question of why. Because of power tripping? Is it because you don't trust your teams? I do very strongly think that there is a huge benefit in the relationship building stage when you're first joining a company for compliance to be pressing palms, kissing and so on. But after a certain point, the benefits start to drop off for many individuals. And I I do acknowledge there are some real extroverts that really love working in the office or people that otherwise feel like it's a better environment for them than at home. And I do not mean to devalue your preferences or views whatsoever good for you. And you'll then have the competitive advantage, of course, over um, competitor candidates who prefer not to be in the office. But I'm thinking more of for those of us who are hiring for our teams in order to be employers of choice, let's be really real about whether we truly do need that role to be five days a week in the office. And if so, will there be people from other departments, management, are they turning up five days in the office? Or is it just part of your subculture and compliance? And what impact will that have on your team more broadly if they've got requirements that are not part of the wider company culture where perhaps hybrid work is promoted more or prized in other areas. We know that we often feel bad when there's inconsistent treatment of colleagues in the workplace. So let's think very carefully about how we can attract top talent, how we can maintain top talent and encourage people to feel that culture of integrity more broadly, not just when it comes to our compliance programs themselves, but how we treat each other in the workplace. I think you're absolutely right. I also think when going back to what I talked about at the beginning of, excuse me, not changing, being able to change everything in a day, I think that there are some cultures, I think sometimes, particularly in universities, I've heard about that, where people come in, they live near it, they're part of the whole campus culture as a whole, and there's a stop by office thing where maybe you do need to be there, but do you need to be there every day? 
It's the choice, right? It's that that autonomy for people to choose for themselves. Especially if, on the flip side, there are a lot of places that are going to smaller offices, less space, Mm -hmm. things. If I have to go into the office when I have to spend all day trying to find a place in an open office to go find a close Mm -hmm. spot to do an investigation, confidential phone calls, Mm -hmm. why do you need me there? Mm -hmm. The thing that I guess I've been thinking about a lot is for people who are willing to be hybrid, if hybrid is another, do companies then save the expense of having extra office space Mm -hmm. and someone flying in a couple days a week or going to Mm -hmm. different places? And when will organizations feel comfortable? I think you hit the nail on the head. Is this just a manager culture issue or is it part of company culture because the other thing is if it is a culture that everybody's been you know smaller medium-sized company everybody's been going into the office for many years they all come back the first day they could after covid do you really want to be the first person who's fighting that is that going to be best for you to give the new person a a opportunity for success or not what you Mm -hmm. don't want is that at pearson at my company doesn't matter where you are i live a mile from our office People say, do you go in a lot? I like going in to see people, but if people aren't necessarily in the office, to go there, just to be there, as I jokingly said a couple of times, I'm here with all my friends, that would be me. You know, that that doesn't help you either. But I think it'll be a really interesting thing to see how organizations do that. But I think that, like you said, the most important thing to get the best talent is to be open to it, but also to recognize the opportunities and limitations of the particular culture from a hiring standpoint. And for job seekers to realize what they think they would need to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now is a critical time for us to think about what are we willing to compromise on, both as employer and job seeker, if you're in that position, because it may not be as sweet as it was, say, a year ago when the Great Resignation was really in force. And one of the things that I found really interesting during that time was that this there seemed to be a maximum cap as to where the Great Resignation was hitting in at least the field of compliance. And I still hear of people who are at the kind of manager, sometimes director level, easily jumping jobs, getting 50% or more salary increases. Like I'm still hearing of that as as late as the end of last year. What never seemed to be the case, from what I understand, was chief compliance officers did not seem to be enjoying that same kind of mobility and demand. And of course, that kind of makes sense when you think of things like a triangle, right? There are only so many roles at that top of the triangle and, of course, more people going for those positions. So I don't think at the very top of the the food chain for compliance we ever really were in the situation of employees dictating the market because we the supply was still outnumbering demand but now what i fear is that for the more junior folk who may have been waiting a while to job hunt i wonder if the window of opportunity is closing a little compared to what it may have been like a year ago by seeing this adjustment of the pendulum swinging from a lot of remote roles to more, not even hybrid, like going straight into on-site position. Yeah, I wouldn't want to have to leave the great dog in compliance every day for that. Well, that's the thing is you start to adjust. And I don't have a great dog in compliance. If I, I did, I'd... I'm somewhat joking, but not. I, mean, I, mean, but you know what? I really value being able to 
put on a load of laundry, let's say between 8am and 9am calls, and then retrieving that laundry and hanging it up at, say, 11.30 after a meeting. That kind of flexibility, it just makes you feel like, at least for me, I just feel like my life is really in control. There's not this endless to-do list of slip stuff slipping because even though you know, working for the bulk of the work day, you're still able to do stuff like make a real meal. Like you're not even eating processed foods and reheating something in a rush in the microwave. You're able to find it. You might be eating at random times, I have to admit. Sometimes I have a meal at 9.30 because that's when I have a gap and that's like my main meal of the day, which isn't necessarily your preferred time of eating. But I would rather have like my freshly steamed vegetables over heating up like I'm referring to New Zealand days here so if this doesn't commute in America but like heating up a tin can of spaghetti like that it's just nowhere near as nutritious as some of the things that you can do when your kitchen is three steps away and even someone's being able to take calls whilst you're chopping up your veggies or whatever that to me is priceless. I also think with that that we all work on the schedules of other time zones and other people yeah. and to be able to have the flexibility regardless of for what yeah. it is or how it is, is the thing that I think we've all grown to value and you lose that if you have no choice and if you have to do calls at seven in the morning or 10 at night depending on yeah. the time zone and where you are and sometimes so, it's both Lisa right yeah. like yeah. sometimes I have a day that starts at seven in the morning and then I'm doing interviews or whatever at nighttime to if let's say Asia needs to be on the meeting the, expecting me to be in the office in the middle of that time it just seems like such a bum deal for the employee yeah I think that's really the most important thing for us to be effective and use the time and I think with that I'm going to give our last quick closing points for me one of the things that the great sister in compliance asked my family this year is think of one word that would be a New Year's, not really a resolution, but something that will help define your, I told Mary, I mentioned this as we started, mine is focus, whether it's focusing on what the priorities are at work or the topics we talked about, or when I'm not at work, being focused on the people around me, things like maybe becoming a better chef, maybe other things, but having true focus on things as opposed to just running from point to point. And I think having flexibility also allows focus. Mary, what about you, since I just threw that at you at the beginning? I like that one a lot, Lisa. I think literally, as well as figuratively, smelling the flowers is one of the greatest things that we can do for ourselves. I really tall poppies? I pardon? The tall poppies? Tall poppies. I don't actually know if poppies have a fragrance, but I really hope you're successful with that one because I think it's super important. Mine is something that I failed at in the past, and many of you know about this because I was vocal about it in the podcast and then didn't do it. So mine is pairing back, being mindful and conscious of what I can reasonably dedicate time and focus to in the year ahead and using my time productively and ensuring that there is enough time for rejuvenation. Many of you know that typically isn't a problem for me because it's something I value so much and probably should be the owner of a spa the way that I'm going. But I'm going to try to be successful this time on the pairing back and being conscious of taking on a smaller load. And I mean that literally as well as probably metaphorically in my head. I think it's a great one. And I really think as we close off, we hope you all enjoyed our kickoff of this uh, 
Wickmaster, as we often call it. Thank you, Mary. It's an honor and a privilege to start another year with you from where we've started into where we are now. Um, Thank thanks to Tom, Sarah mm-hmm. Haddon, and Corporate mm-hmm. Compliance Insights and the Compliance Podcast Network. And with that, we wish everybody has kicking off a great new year that you're paring down what you need to, focusing, and we look forward to spending some more time with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.